Chapter 3 of Good Stories for Great Birthdays. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dusty Brailsford. Good Stories for Great Birthdays by Francis Jenkins Alcott. October 27. Theodore Roosevelt, America's Hero. On behalf of all our people, on behalf no less of the honest man of means than of the honest man who earns each day's livelihood by that day's sweat of his brow, it is necessary to insist upon honesty in business and politics alike, in all walks of life, in big things and in little things, upon just and fair dealing as between man and man. Theodore Roosevelt the square deal. We of the great modern democracies must strive unceasingly to make our several countries lands in which a poor man who works hard can live comfortably and honestly, and in which a rich man cannot live dishonestly nor in slothful avoidance of duty. And yet, we must judge rich man and poor man alike by a standard which rests on conduct and not on caste and we must frown with the same stern severity on the mean and vicious envy which hates and would plunder a man because he is well off, and on the brutal and selfish arrogance which looks down on and exploits the man with whom life has gone hard. Theodore Roosevelt Colonel Theodore Roosevelt was born in New York City, October 27, 1858. Was appointed police commissioner of New York City, 1895 aided in establishing the independence of Cuba, 1898, was elected governor of the state of New York, 1898, served as president of the United States, 1901 to 1909. He died January 6, 1919. The Boy Who Grew Strong, Not in a Log Cabin Theodore Roosevelt, unlike Abraham Lincoln, was not born in a log cabin. On the contrary, he was born to wealth and position in the city of New York. He was reared in an elegant home and educated in one of the famous universities of the country. He read law, but he had no need to practice a profession. His father had retired from business, and there was no occasion for the son to take up a business career. But Theodore Roosevelt preferred for himself a life of toil, the strenuous life, Ill health was the first and greatest of all his disadvantages. When a boy, said he, I was pig-chested and asthmatic. From earliest infancy he was called to battle with asthma. It lowered his vitality and threatened his growth. His body was frail, but within was the conquering spirit. He determined to be strong like other boys. In this he had the loving help of gentle parents. On the wide back porch of their home in the city of New York, they fitted up a gymnasium where he strove for bodily vigor with all of his might. Although at the start, his pole climbing was very poor, he kept trying until he got to the top. He would carry his gymnastic exercises to the perilous verge of the window ledge, more to the alarm of the neighbors than of his own family. In the wide out of doors, summer was the season of Roosevelt's delight, then he ceased to be a city boy. 
at his father's country place on long island he learned to run and ride row and swim and when the long sleepless nights came the father would take his invalid boy in his arms wrap him up warmly and drive him in the free open air through fifteen or twenty miles of darkness the boy had his father's love of the woods and the fields he studied and classified the birds of the neighborhood until he knew their songs and plumage and nests he and his young friends could be relied on to find the spot where the violets bloomed the earliest and the trees on which the walnuts were the most plentiful as well as the pools where the minnows swarmed and the favorite refuge of the coon he was taken to europe in the hope that it would benefit his health a tall thin lad with bright eyes and legs like pipe stems when at last he was ready to go to college he had vanquished his enemy ill health and was ready to play a man's part in life i made my health what it is he said later i determined to be strong and well and did everything to make myself so by the time i entered harvard i was able to take part in whatever sports i liked i wrestled and sparred and i ran a great deal and although i never came in first i got more out of the exercise than those who did because i immensely enjoyed it and never injured myself busting broncos after leaving college young roosevelt entered politics finally between legislative sessions he surrendered to his impulses and started for the wild west he left the train in north dakota at the little town of medora the young visitor from the east sought out two hunters and told them that he wished to go buffalo hunting with them and he did so though hunting the buffalo then was no fancy pastime it was in truth a rare chance to see the wild west in the last glow of its golden age soon it was all to vanish and pass into the most romantic chapter of american history before his first visit was at an end he had become a ranchman the young master of elkhorn ranch brave outspoken and always ready to bear his full share of toil and hardship was not long in winning the respect and hearty goodwill of the bluff honest men of the badlands after only a little experience in ranching he learned to sit in his saddle and ride his horse like a lifelong plainsman but he never pretended to any special fondness for a bucking bronco and a story is told of a trick played on him by some friendly persons in medora he was in town waiting for a train that was to bring a guest from the east while he was in a store the jokers placed his saddle on a notoriously vicious beast which they substituted for his mount when he came out in haste to ride around to the railway station he did not detect the deception once he was on the horse's back the bronco bucked and whirled to the amusement of the grinning villagers but to their amazement the young ranchman succeeded in staying on him and spurring him into a run away they flew to the prairies and soon back they raced in a cloud of dust and through the town the friend from the east arrived and joined the spectators who waited to see if the young squire of elkhorn ever would return in a little while he was seen coming along the road at a gentle gait and when he reached his starting point he dismounted with a smile of quiet mastery from as meek a creature as ever stood on four legs he had no use however for a horse whose spirit ran altogether to ugliness when he first went west he doubted the theory of the natives that any horse was hopelessly bad 
For instance, there was one in the sod-roofed log stable of Elkhorn who had been labeled the devil. Roosevelt believed that gentleness would overcome devil. The boys thought it might if he should live to be 75. After much patient wooing, devil actually let Roosevelt lay his hand on him and pat him. The boys began to think that possibly there was something to this new plan of bronco busting. One day, however, when his gentle trainer made bold to saddle and mount him, Devil quickly drew his four hoofs together, leaped into the air, and came down with a jerk and a thud. Then he finished with a few fancy curves that landed his disillusioned rider a good many yards in front of him. Roosevelt sprang to his feet and on to the back of the animal. Four times he was thrown. Finally, the determined rider maneuvered Devil out onto a quicksand where bucking is impossible. And when at last he was driven back to solid earth, he was like a lamb. In this rough life of the range, the young ranchman conquered forever the physical weaknesses of his youth and put on that rude strength which enabled him to stand before the world a model of vigorous manhood. James Morgan, Arranged Sagamore Hill his Home at Oyster Bay From Roosevelt's Autobiography Sagamore Hill takes its name from the old Sagamore Mohannes, who, as chief of his little tribe, signed away his rights to the land two centuries and a half ago. The house stands right on the top of the hill, separated by fields and belts of woodland from all other houses, and looks out over the bay and the sound. We see the sun go down beyond long reaches of land and of water. Many birds dwell in the trees round the house or in the pastures and the woods nearby. And of course in winter, gulls, loons, and wildfowl frequent the waters of the bay and the sound. Roosevelt Breaking Devil We love all the seasons, the snows and the bare woods of winter, the rush of growing things and the blossom spray of spring, the yellow grain, the ripening fruits and the tasseled corn, and the deep leafy shades that are heralded by the green dance of summer, and the sharp fall winds that tear the brilliant banners in which the trees greet the dying year. The sound is always lovely. In the summer nights we watch it from the piazza, and see the lights of the tall fall river boats as they steam steadily by. Now and then we spend a day on it, the two of us together in the light rowing skiff, or perhaps with one of the boys to pull an extra pair of oars. We land for lunch at noon under wind-beaten oaks on the edge of a low bluff, or among the wild plum bushes on a spit of white sand, while the sails of the coasting schooners gleam in the sunlight, and the tolling of the bell buoy comes landward across the waters. Early in April, there is one hillside near us which glows like a tender flame in the white of the bloodroot. About the same time, we find the shy mayflower, the trailing arbutus. And although we rarely pick wildflowers, one member of the household always plucks a little bunch of mayflowers to send to a friend working in Panama, whose soul hungers for the northern spring. Then there are shadblow and delicate anemones about the time of the cherry blossoms. The brief glory of the apple orchards follows, and then the thronging dogwoods fill the forests with their radiance. 
and so flowers follow flowers until the springtime splendor closes with the laurel and the evanescent honey-sweet locust bloom. The late summer flowers follow, the flaunting lilies and the cardinal flowers and marshmallows and pale beech rosemary and the goldenrod and the asters, when the afternoons shorten and we again begin to think of fires in the wide fireplaces. Theodore Roosevelt The Children of Sagamore Hill Mrs. Roosevelt looked after the place itself. She supervised the farming, and the flower gardens were her especial care. The children were now growing up, and from the time when they could toddle, they took their place, a very large place, in the life of the home. Roosevelt described the intense satisfaction he had in teaching the boys what his father had taught him. As soon as they were large enough, they rode their horses. They sailed on the cove and out into the sound. They played boys' games, and through him, they learned very young to observe nature. In his college days, he had intended to be a naturalist, and a natural history remained his strongest avocation. And so he taught his children to know the birds and animals, the trees, plants, and flowers of Oyster Bay and its neighborhood. They had their pets. Kermit, one of the boys, carried a pet rat in his pocket. Three things Roosevelt required of them all. Obedience, manliness, and truthfulness. William Roscoe Thayer Off with John Burroughs From Roosevelt's Autobiography One April, I went to Yellowstone Park, where the snow was still very deep, and I took John Burroughs with me. I wished to show him the big game of the park, the wild creatures that have become so astonishingly tame and tolerant of human presence. In the Yellowstone, the animals seemed always to behave as one wishes them to. It is always possible to see the sheep and deer and antelope and also the great herds of elk which are shyer than the smaller beasts. In April, we found the elk weak after the short commons and hard living of winter. Once, without much difficulty, I regularly rounded up a big band of them so that John Burroughs could look at them. I do not think, however, that he cared to see them as much as I did. The birds interested him more, especially a tiny owl the size of a robin, which he saw perched on the top of a tree in mid-afternoon, entirely uninfluenced by the sun and making a queer noise like a cork being pulled from a bottle. I was rather ashamed to find how much better his eyes were than mine in seeing the birds and grasping their differences. Theodore Roosevelt The Big Stick I saw Roosevelt a strong man who had taken early to heart Hamlet's maxim and had steadfastly practiced it. Rightly to be great is not to stir without great argument, but greatly to find quarrel in a straw when honor's at the stake. He himself summed up this part of his philosophy in a phrase which has become a proverb. Speak softly, but carry a big stick. More than once in his later years he quoted this to me, adding that it was precisely because this or that power knew that he carried a big stick that he was enabled to speak softly with effect. William Roscoe Thayer, Condensed A Hunting Trees with John Muir from Roosevelt's Autobiography. When I first visited California, it was my good fortune to see the big trees 
the sequoias, and then to travel down into the Yosemite with John Muir. Of course, of all people in the world, he was the one with whom it was best worthwhile thus to see the Yosemite. John Muir met me with a couple of packers and two mules to carry our tent, bedding, and food for a three days trip. The first night was clear, and we lay down in the darkening aisles of the great sequoia grove. The majestic trunks, beautiful in their color and in symmetry, rose around us like the pillars of a mightier cathedral than ever was conceived even by the fervor of the Middle Ages. Hermit thrushes sang beautifully in the evening, and again with a burst of wonderful music at dawn. I was interested and a little surprised to find that, unlike John Burroughs, John Muir cared little for birds or bird songs and knew little about them. The hermit thrushes meant nothing to him, and the trees and the flowers and the cliffs, everything. The only birds he noticed or cared for were some that were very conspicuous, such as the water owls, always peculiar favorites of mine too. The second night we camped in a snowstorm on the edge of the canyon walls, under the spreading limbs of a grove of mighty silver fir. And next day, we went down into the wonderland of the valley itself. I shall always be glad that I was in the Yosemite with John Muir, and the Yellowstone with John Burroughs. Theodore Roosevelt, Condensed. The Bear Hunter's Dinner From Roosevelt's Autobiography When wolf hunting in Texas, and when bear hunting in Louisiana and Mississippi, I was not only enthralled by the sport, but also by the strange new birds and other creatures, and the trees and flowers I had not known before. By the way, there was one feast at the White House, which stands above all others in my memory. This was the Bear Hunter's Dinner. I had been treated so kindly by my friends on these hunts, and they were such fine fellows, men whom I was so proud to think of as Americans— that I set my heart on having them at a hunter's dinner at the White House. One December, I succeeded. There were twenty or thirty of them, all told, as good hunters, as daring riders, as first-class citizens as could be found anywhere. No finer set of guests ever sat at meat in the White House. And among other game on the table was a black bear, itself contributed by one of these same guests. Theodore Roosevelt condensed. Hunting in Africa, from Roosevelt's Autobiography. The African buffalo is undoubtedly a dangerous beast, but it happened that the few that I shot did not charge. A bull elephant, a vicious rogue, which had been killing people in the native villages, did charge before being shot at. My son Kermit and I stopped it at 40 yards. Another bull elephant, also unwounded, which charged, nearly got me, as I had just fired both cartridges from my heavy double-barreled rifle, in killing the bull I was after, the first wild elephant I had ever seen. The second bull came through the thick brush to my left, like a steam plow through a light snowdrift, everything snapping before his rush, and it was so near that he could have hit me with his trunk. I slipped past him behind a tree. People have asked me how I felt on this occasion. My answer has always been that I suppose I felt as most men of like experience feel on such occasions. At such a moment, a hunter is so very busy that he has no time to get frightened. 
He wants to get in his cartridges and try another shot. Rhinoceros are truculent, blustering beasts, much the most stupid of all the dangerous game I know. Generally, their attitude is one of mere stupidity and bluff, but on occasions they do charge wickedly, both when wounded and when entirely unprovoked. The first I ever shot, I mortally wounded at a few rods distance, and it charged with the utmost determination. Whereat I and my companion both fired, and, more by good luck than anything else, brought it to the ground just thirteen paces from where we stood. Another rhinoceros may or may not have been meaning to charge me. I have never been certain which. It heard us and came at us through rather thick brush, snorting and tossing its head. I am by no means sure that it had fixedly hostile intentions. And indeed, with my present experience, I think it likely that if I had not fired, it would have flinched at the last moment and either retreated or gone by me. But I am not a rhinoceros mind-reader, and its actions were such as to warrant my regarding it as a suspicious character. I stopped it with a couple of bullets, and then followed it up and killed it. The skins of these animals which I thus killed are in the National Museum at Washington. Theodore Roosevelt, Condensed. The Ever-Faithful Island Now let us see what Theodore Roosevelt did to help establish liberty in this hemisphere. It is a far cry from the very magnificent Don Christopher Columbus, Admiral of the Ocean Sea and Discoverer of the West Indies and South America, to plain Theodore Roosevelt of Oyster Bay and Citizen of the United States of North America. Yet it was a very direct cry, a ringing call down through four centuries, a never-ceasing plea for liberty and safety. And it was plain Colonel Theodore Roosevelt who, with his rough riders, helped to break the last link of the chain of Spanish domination in America. Its first link was unwittingly forged by Columbus when he discovered the gold and pearls of the New World. Through the many years, Cuba, the ever-faithful island, remained loyal to Spain, while her other American possessions declared their independence, slipped from her grasp, and set up republics. But instead of taking warning from her American losses, Spain continued her policy of repression in Cuba. Then there arose Cuban patriots, among them Gomez, Macao, and Garcia, who struggled for Cuba's freedom. There were rebellions, insurrections, and war. Great and terrible were the sufferings of the people. It is not possible here to give an account of the Cuban War for Independence, but after a terrific struggle, it was finally won in 1898 with the help of our United States. Thus Spain lost her last foothold in America and withdrew from this hemisphere. Today, the island of Cuba, the ever-faithful island, and the Pearl of the Antilles is a flourishing republic with a world commerce. And during the World War, the red, white, and blue single-bestarred flag of Cuba waved over a brave Cuban army, the ally of the United States. But as to Theodore Roosevelt's part in liberating the island, while he was Assistant Secretary of the Navy under President McKinley, we will let one of his biographers tell about it. The Colonel of the Rough Riders In the name of humanity, in the name of civilization, in behalf of endangered American interests, which give us the right and the duty to speak and act, the war in Cuba must stop. 
President McKinley. Roosevelt had always felt the danger to the United States of maintaining a despicable or an inadequate Navy, and from the moment he entered the Navy Department, he set about pushing the construction of the unfinished vessels and of improving the quality of the personnel. He was impelled to do this not merely by his instinct to bring whatever he undertook up to the highest standard, but also because he had a premonition that a crisis was at hand, which might call the country at an instant's notice to protect itself with all the power it had. Roosevelt was impressed by the insurrection in Cuba, which kept that island in perpetual disorder. The cruel means, especially reconcentration and starvation, by which the Spaniards tried to put down the Cubans, stirred the sympathy of the Americans and the number of those who believed that the United States ought to interfere in behalf of humanity grew from month to month. During his first year in office, Assistant Secretary Roosevelt busied himself with all the details of preparation, and all the while he watched the horizon towards Cuba, where the signs grew angrier and angrier. But the young secretary had to act with circumspection. President McKinley, desiring to keep the peace up to the very end, would not countenance any move which might seem to the Spaniards either a threat or an insult. Early in the evening of February 15, 1898, the U.S. battleship Maine, peaceably riding at her moorings in Havana Harbor, was blown up. Two officers and 264 enlisted men were killed by the explosion and in the sinking of the ship. The next morning, the newspapers carried the report to all parts of the United States, and indeed to the whole world. A tidal wave of anger surged over this country. That means war! was the common utterance. I doubt whether Roosevelt ever worked with greater relish than during the week succeeding the blowing up of the main. The Navy Department arranged in hot haste to victual the ships, to provide them with stores of coal and ammunition, to bring the crews up to their full quota by enlisting, to lay out a plan of campaign, to see the naval bases and the lines of communication, and to cooperate with the War Department in making ready the land fortifications along the shore. Having accomplished his duty as Assistant Secretary, Roosevelt resigned. He thought that he had the right to retire from that post and to gratify his long-cherished desire to take part in the actual warfare. General Alger, the Secretary of War, had a great liking for Roosevelt, offered him a commission in the Army, and even the command of a regiment. This he prudently declined, having no technical military knowledge. He proposed instead that Dr. Leonard Wood should be made colonel and that he should serve under Wood as lieutenant colonel. While Roosevelt finished his busyness at the Navy Department, Colonel Wood hurried to San Antonio, Texas, the rendezvous of the 1st Regiment of Volunteer Cavalry, the Rough Riders. A call for volunteers issued by Roosevelt and endorsed by Secretary Alger spread throughout the West and Southwest, and it met with a quick response. Not even in Garibaldi's famous thousand was such a strange crowd gathered. It comprised cowpunchers, ranchmen, hunters, professional gamblers, and rascals of the border. Sportsmen mingled with the society's sports, former football players, and oarsmen, polo players, and lovers of adventure from the great eastern cities. They all had one quality in common, courage, and they were all bound together by one common bond, 
devotion to Theodore Roosevelt. Nearly every one of them knew him personally. Some of the Western men had hunted or ranched with him. Some of the Eastern had been with him in college or had contact with him in one of the many vicissitudes of his career. I shall not attempt to follow in detail the story of the Rough Riders, but shall touch only on those matters which referred to Roosevelt himself. Wood, having been promoted to Brigadier General in command of a larger unit, Theodore Roosevelt became Colonel of the Regiment of Rough Riders. On July 1st and 2nd, he commanded the Rough Riders in their attack on and capture of San Juan Hill in connection with some colored troops. In this engagement, their nearest approach to a battle, the Rough Riders, who had less than 500 men in action, lost 89 in killed and wounded. Then followed a dreary life in the trenches until Santiago surrendered, and then a still more terrible experience while they waited for Spain to give up the war. Under a killing tropical sun, receiving irregular and often damaged food, without tent or other protection from the heat or from the rain, the Rough Riders endured for weeks the ravages of fever, climate, and privation. Finally, because of Roosevelt's insistence, the government at Washington, without loss of time, ordered the army home. The sick were transported by thousands to Montauk Point, at the eastern end of Long Island, where, in spite of the best medical care which could be improvised, large numbers of them died. But the Army knew, and the American public knew, that Roosevelt had saved multitudes of lives. At Montauk Point, he was the most popular man in America. This concludes Roosevelt's career as a soldier. The experience introduced to the public those virile qualities of his with which his friends were familiar. William Roscoe Thayer arranged. The River of Doubt Roosevelt decided to make one more trip for hunting and exploration. As he could not go to the North Pole, he said because he would be poaching on Perry's field, he selected South America. He had long wished to visit the southern continent, and invitations to speak at Rio de Janeiro and at Buenos Aires gave him an excuse for setting out. He started with the distinct purpose of collecting animal and botanical specimens, this time for the American Museum of Natural History in New York, which provided two trained naturalists to accompany him. His son Kermit, toughened by the previous adventure, went also. Having paid his visits and seen the civilized parts of Brazil, Uruguay, and Argentina, he ascended the Paraguay River and then struck across the plateau, which divides its watershed from that of the tributaries of the Amazon, for he proposed to make his way through an unexplored region in central Brazil and reach the outposts of civilization on the Great River. The Brazilian government had informed him that by the route he had chosen, he would meet a large river, the River of Doubt, by which he could descend to the Amazon. There were some twenty persons, including a dozen or fifteen native rowers and pack-bearers in his party. They had canoes and dugouts, supplies of food for about forty days, and a carefully chosen outfit. With high hopes, they put their craft into the water and moved downstream. But on the fourth day, they found rapids ahead and from that time on, they were constantly obliged to land and carry their dugouts and stores round a cataract. 
the peril of being swept over the falls was always imminent and as the trail which constituted their portages had to be cut through the matted forest their labors were increased in the first eleven days they progressed only sixty miles no one knew the distance they would have to traverse nor how long the river would be broken by falls and cataracts before it came down into the plain of the amazon some of their canoes were smashed on the rocks two of the natives were drowned they watched their provisions shrink contrary to their expectations the forest had almost no animals if they could shoot a monkey or a monster lizard they rejoiced at having a little fresh meat tropical insects bit them day and night and caused inflammation and even infection man-eating fish lived in the river making it dangerous for the men when they tried to cool their inflamed bodies by a swim most of the party had malaria and could be kept going only by large doses of quinine roosevelt while in the water wounded his leg on a rock inflammation set in and prevented him from walking so that he had to be carried across the portages the physical strength of the party sapped by sickness and fatigue was visibly waning still the cataracts continued to impede their progress and to add terribly to their toil the supply of food had shrunk so much that the rations were restricted and amounted to little more than enough to keep the men able to go forward slowly then fever attacked roosevelt and they had to wait for a few days because he was too weak to be moved he besought them to leave him and hurry along to safety because every day they delayed consumed their diminishing store of food and they might all die of starvation they refused to leave him however a change for the better in his condition came soon they moved forward at last they left the rapids behind them and could drift and paddle on the unobstructed river roosevelt lay in the bottom of a dugout shaded by a bit of canvas put up over his head and too weak from sickness even to splash water on his face for he was almost fainting from the muggy heat and the tropical sunshine forty-eight days after they began their voyage on the river of doubt they saw a peasant a rubber gatherer the first human being they had met thenceforward they journeyed without incident the river of doubt flowed into the large river madeira where they found a steamer which took them to manaus on the amazon during the homeward voyage roosevelt slowly recovered his strength but he had never again the iron physique with which he had embarked the year before the brazilian wilderness stole away ten years of his life he found on his return home that some geographers and south american explorers laughed at his story of the river of doubt he laughed too at their incredulity and presently the brazilian government having established the truth of his exploration and named the river after him rio teodoro his laughter prevailed he took real satisfaction in having placed on the map of central brazil a river six hundred miles long william roscoe thayer arranged theodore roosevelt the evil men do lives after them so does the good with the passing of years a man's name and fame either drift into oblivion or they are seen in their lasting proportions you must sail fifty miles over the ionian sea and look back before you can fully measure the magnitude and majesty of mount etna not otherwise i believe will it be with theodore roosevelt when the people of the future look back upon him the blemishes due to misunderstanding will have faded away 
the transient clouds will have vanished, the world will see him as he was. Those of us who knew him, knew him as the most astonishing human expression of the creative spirit we have ever seen. His manifold talents, his protean interests, his tireless energy, his thunderbolts which he did not let loose, as well as those he did, his masterful will, sheathed in self-control, like a sword in its scabbard, would have rendered him superhuman had he not possessed other qualities which made him the best of playmates for mortals. He had humor, which raises everyone to the same level. He had loyalty, which bound his friends to him for life. He had sympathy and capacity for strong, deep love. How tender he was with little children. How courteous with women. No matter whether you brought to him important things or trifles, he understood. I can think of no vicissitude in life in which Roosevelt's participation would not have been welcome. If it were danger, there could be no more valiant comrade than he. If it were sport, he was a sportsman. If it were mirth, he was a fountain of mirth, crystal pure and sparkling. But yesterday, he seemed one who embodied life to the utmost. With the assured step of one whom nothing can frighten or surprise, he walked our earth as on granite. Suddenly, the granite grew more unsubstantial than a bubble, and he dropped beyond sight into the eternal silence. Happy we who had such a friend. Happy the American Republic, which bore such a son. William Roscoe Thayer, Condensed. End of chapter 3. Recording by Dusty Brailsford.